morning, everybody. It's uh, nice to see the, uh, the stalwarts who decided to come out and join us. Um, so uh, I know uh, somebody had mentioned to me earlier today that I, I shouldn't have said anything about the, the Wednesday service having bad weather a couple weeks ago because it seems that uh, that's continuing to be the trend here. Uh, but this is Wyoming, so we will carry on whatever the weather. Uh, so as you probably know, we're continuing our study verse by verse through the Old Testament in the book of Joshua this week. Uh, so we saw um, the early chapters of Joshua kind of preparing the people for the work that God was going to do, uh, that Moses led the people up to the very edge of the promised land, commissioned Joshua as the new leader, and then Joshua starts off with just God really reminding the people of Israel to be strong, to be courageous, that he would be with them, uh, kind of building this up, building them up before they go in to capture the promised land, to take hold of the promises that God had given to them and to their ancestors so long before. And so we see Joshua send out the men to spy the land. We see uh, the narrative with Rahab hiding the spies and uh, making a deal with them that she might join in with Israel, become part of the blessing that God was giving to these people. Uh, we also saw God miraculously part the Jordan River so that the people of Israel could cross. Uh, that was kind of the last major physical barrier between them and the promised land. And God, in much the same way as he had parted the Red Sea, parted the Jordan River, allowing the nation of Israel to cross over physically into the land of Canaan and then close the river behind them, uh, kind of drawing to an end their wanderings in the wilderness and bringing them that much closer to the land that they were going to conquer. And so as we get into this next section of Joshua, we're going to see the people of Israel go in and actually do battle with the inhabitants of the land to begin that physical task of capturing the land of Canaan and beginning to dwell in it. And so as we go into this section, we think about just the, the similarities between that and between our own lives, walking day-to-day -day in relationship with Christ and following him. And there's a lot of times where faith can be thought of as a battle. That as we go through life, we have to remember that there is an enemy out there that he is seeking to destroy us, that we will face trials and temptations and difficulties, and that God is faithful through all of those. And so as we go through Joshua, we can be reminded of the seriousness of the battle we're fighting, but also the hope we have because of who is with us. And so our focus point this evening, uh, kind of our, our takeaway we want to dial in on, is pretty simple. It fits very closely with the th our theme for this book. But the focus point is that God gives his people victory. Uh, that God is the one who brings victory. It's not due to military might, to cunning, strategically savvy leaders. It's not due to anything else that they could attribute this to. That victory comes from God. And that is as much true for us today as it was for the nation of Israel in this situation. And we'll see that as we continue through these chapters tonight. That the only one who could be credited with this great victory is God. Uh, 
And so as we get into this, this evening, uh, we're going to be picking up in Joshua chapter 5, starting in verse 1. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea, heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. And so at the very beginning of this chapter, we see a reminder of what God is doing, of how God is working here. That God fights on behalf of his people. And really, the statement towards the end of this verse, uh, that the, the people dwelling in the land said that their hearts melted, there was no spirit in them because of what they had heard about the people of Israel and about their God. And God did this in fulfillment of promises that he had given to the people of Israel so long before. Uh, we see in Exodus chapter 23, repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 2, God promises the nation of Israel that when they go in to conquer the land of Canaan, that the people living there will be in great fear of them, that they will be afraid, they will be trembling because they'll have heard of all the great things that God had done for these people, that it would strike fear into the hearts of the enemies of Israel, knowing that the God that was with them was so powerful, so mighty, was doing things that they could not even imagine happening apart from his power. And so the people of Israel also, on the flip side of this, had to be very encouraged going into this, that they're seeing God perform great miracles on their behalf, um, that they're reminded that this is God's plan and God's will for them, and that God will carry out his plan and his will through his power in accordance or in cooperation with their obedience. Continue on in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Harloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give to us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. So the people of Israel cross over into the land of Canaan. God parts the Jordan River. We hear about how all the nations who dwell in Canaan are afraid of them, and then they stop, and they take a break here. And they have some business they have to attend to before they're ready to go in and conquer the promised land. Uh, so a little recap about circumcision in the Old Testament. We see God first implement this as a sign of the covenant he made with the people of Israel. Uh, this was to be one of the, the things they would do to set them apart. This was something that, that they would follow after 
to remind themselves that they are a set-apart people, a nation holy and unique before God. And so when Moses first led the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, they stopped and they went through and circumcised all the males, all the adult men who were old enough to fight in battle as part of this ritual, this reminder of the God they followed and the relationship they had with him. So they do that when they first leave Egypt and then they journey to the promised land. The people rebel against God and against Moses' leadership, turn away, and because of that, they wander in the wilderness for 40 years in judgment, waiting for that rebellious generation to die off. And so that happens. The, the rebellious generation dies. They come into the promised land, cross the Jordan River, and now they're here. And at this point, all the adult men who were old enough to fight in the army had not been circumcised because they were too young or had not even been born the last time they did this. And so God tells Joshua that it's time to go through this again, to go in and circumcise the men of Israel, to remind them that they are set apart and holy to God, that they live in a special and unique covenant relationship with this God. And this was the symbol, the sign that he had given them for this covenantal relationship. And it's interesting noting how God goes about this, God's timing with all of this. So Israel had just come across a mile-wide stretch of flooded river that God had parted for them. And now, instead of being on the far side of the river, they've crossed the river and they're on the same side with their enemies. And God says, okay, stop, time out here. All the men, all the adults, your whole armed fighting force, we're going to go through this, and they're going to be out of commission for a while. Um, we see other places in Scripture uh, where it talks about men being circumcised and just the you know, process that it really limits their abilities to do much of anything for at least a few days. And so God leads the people into this place. He brings them into the promised land, closer to their enemies, and then he stops them and basically puts their whole fighting force on pause, leaves them in what would really be militarily a very vulnerable position. And we have to think, why would God do this? And oftentimes, I think in our own lives, we're put in that same situation. Why would God do this? Why is God working this way? It makes so much more sense if God would do this other thing, if God would take the shortcut right here, or the easy route. If God would not lead me into this place of difficulty and suffering. But we have to remember that God does not always work the same way we do. God does not always do the things that make sense to us. Because God is greater, God is mightier. God's knowledge is above what we have, what we possess. And God's ways are perfect in a way that our imperfect minds sometimes cannot fully comprehend. And so in this situation, the people of Israel had to trust in God. They had to rest in his sovereignty, in his power, and trust in him to protect them at a point when they really were unable to protect themselves. So the people of Israel are in this situation 
They're going through renewing this ritual, part of their covenant relationship with the Lord, having to trust in his faithfulness. And then God continues and kind of continues to teach them another lesson through this. Uh, Joshua chapter 5, verse 8. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. And so reading over this, it's interesting uh, just to, to note some of the wording here. I know the, the concept of reproach really stood out to me as I read through this. Uh, the Lord said, today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so as I was studying through this, uh, there doesn't seem to be necessarily a consensus among scholars on what exactly the reproach of Egypt would have been in this case. Uh, looking at the, the word that's used there for reproach, it implies disgrace, scorn, dishonor. Uh, the people of Israel were in some way looked down upon or seen as lesser because of this. And so we think about all that the nation had been through. Uh, they were enslaved as a people group by Egypt. Um, that certainly there was some sort of disgrace that came along with that, of being known being marked by servitude. Now we also see the people of Israel doing some things to themselves that could have brought that about. Uh, at the end of Joshua in chapter 24, he warns them to not go back to worshiping the false gods that they worshiped in Egypt. And so we know that the people of Israel, before God sent Moses to bring them out of Egypt, to rescue them, that they were engaging in idolatrous worship of false gods while they were in the land of Egypt. Um, that is certainly another thing that would bring reproach upon a people, that would make them worthy of looking down upon at some level. We also know that the nation of Israel had just finished 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, that for 40 years they had been separated from the blessing that God had promised to them because of their disobedience, their sinfulness had led them away from the path that God desired that they follow. And so it's another area, I think, that would bring reproach upon a people. And whatever the reason is for that, whatever of those possible meanings it could have been, I think the point is that God had helped them move beyond what was in their past. That there were things in the past for the nation of Israel that brought reproach, that were dishonorable, that would be scorned by others looking at them. And they weren't able to deal with that on their own. So God had to remove their reproach. That God had made them holy, had brought them back into a favorable right relationship with him through his own grace and his own power. One of my uh, favorite passages of the scriptures um, talking about the gospel, really, I think summing up so much of it, is Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, talks about how we were dead in our sins and our trespasses in which you once walked, following the course of the word, world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved." And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Such a great passage. I could go on reading there for a while. You know, there's, there's a lot to see there. But I think that's a similar idea to what we're talking about here in Joshua. That like the nation of Israel, we were living apart from God, that our sin had separated us from God, had brought us into a place where it was difficult for us to experience the love and the blessing of God, that our own sinfulness had brought us there and there was nothing we could do about it. But God stepped in and took away not only the reproach of that sin, but it says that he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places, that God brought us from a lowly people, separated from him, dead in our sins, and raised us up to live with him, to sit next to him in glory. That this is the same God working in our lives and in the lives of the people of Israel. That God is able to deal with whatever is in our past. And so we can take heart in that as the people of Israel did, that despite their 40 years of punishment for their sin, that God was still faithful to be with them, to take away their reproach, to bring them back into the blessing that he had promised to give them. And in the same way, God can deal with whatever is in our past. He can bring us out of the darkness into the light and allow us to walk in obedience and in his grace as we go through life. What a great God it is that we serve. So back to Joshua. So uh, the, the fighting men have all been circumcised. God has taken away their reproach, brought them back into right relationship with them. And so in celebration of that, they're going to celebrate, to observe the Passover. So Joshua 5 verse 10. Well, the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal. They kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. And this is one of those paragraphs that I think if you read over it and don't slow down, you might miss the significance of it. But as we go through this, we're reminded that the people of Israel on camp there, that God has taken away their reproach and that they haven't celebrated a Passover in quite a while. Uh, that the last recorded Passover we see the people of Israel celebrating is when they're camped out at Mount Sinai shortly after leaving Egypt. And so quick reminder, God implemented the feast of Passover um, to remind the people of how he had brought them out of slavery in Egypt and how he had saved the firstborn that should have died 
through the blood of a lamb. It gives us a great symbol of the gospel that we look forward to. And so the people of Israel had not celebrated the Passover, celebrated what God had done to bring them out of Egypt and to save them for quite some years now. Um, that because of their sin, because of their disobedience to God, they had not only been wandering for 40 years in the wilderness, but they had in some way kind of separated themselves from the blessing of that covenant relationship that God had desired with them. And so because their sin got in the way of this, it had been some time since they had dwelt with God in quite this manner. And so God has brought them into the promised land. He's taken away their reproach. And he tells them to celebrate the Passover, to remember what he had done for them. And then it says in verse 11 that the day after the Passover, they ate of the produce of the land. And then in verse 12, the manna ceased the day after they ate of that. And there was no longer manna for the people. So this is really a big shift in the life of the nation of Israel. That for 40 years, they've been wandering in the wilderness, um, not dwelling in God's blessing because of their sin. God was still there. He was still faithful to them, even in the midst of their punishment. He'd been providing for them daily food to eat, providing water for them to drink. But now, they were living differently. That now, the time of punishment was over. It was time to move forward and take hold of the blessings that God was going to give them. And so as part of that, they celebrate the Passover and they eat the food of the land. That they're no longer wandering away from their home, reliant on manna for sustenance. That they're now in Canaan, they're in the promised land, and they're able to eat and drink the fruit of the land that God had promised to give them. They're able to experience that first level of the blessing that God was giving them. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Uh, when I was growing up, I, I spent a lot of time with my grandparents. Uh, they were a big influence on my life. And uh, my grandpa, he, he loved the outdoors, he loved camping, he loved to fish, he loved uh, music. Another thing uh, he loved was movies. You know, I loved the, the storytelling aspect of it and um, getting to kind of see character development and plots and all those things. And so I spent a lot of time uh, when I was at my grandparents' house watching uh, older movies with them. And uh, of course, being a young boy, my favorites were always the westerns and the war movies. And I, uh, I think when I read this passage, it reminds me of a, a scene in the the epic World War II film, The Longest Day. Uh, chronicles the uh, D-Day landings bringing the Allied forces into France to defeat Nazi Germany. 
And uh, there's a, a point relatively early on in the movie where one of the German officers is frustrated with the way things are going, um, with the, the way the invasion is coming, and he's not getting the, the reinforcements he needs. And he says, I wonder whose side God is on. And then later on in the movie, towards the end, uh, one of the, the American soldiers says something very similar. I wonder whose side God is really on. And so we read through this and we see Joshua asking that same question. That he sees this man standing before him with a drawn sword. And he says, are you for us or for our adversaries? Whose side are you on? And the man replies, that's the wrong question. He says, I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. It's not whose side this man is on. It is, are you on his side? Because this is God. So the question is not so much, is God on your side? But are you on God's side? So we read on uh, in verse 14. It says that Joshua fell on his face to earth and worshipped. And said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Uh, so as we read through this, I think there's a couple things here that give us a clue that this is probably more than just an angel. Uh, that most scholars would say that this is a pre-incarnate appearance of the Son, the third person of the Trinity, of Jesus Christ. And we see him come as the commander of the Lord's army, and Joshua falls down and worships him. And so the fact that normally uh, when, when somebody in the Bible falls down before an angel and tries to worship it, they tell him, no, no, stop, I'm, you know, I'm I'm not God, I'm just a messenger. This one doesn't say anything. He accepts that worship and then goes on to communicate further with Joshua. In verse 15, he instructs Joshua to take off his sandals for the place where you were standing is holy. Uh, so it bears a strong resemblance, more than just a little, to the calling of Moses early on in the book of Exodus that we see Moses spoken to by the burning bush and he approaches the bush and comes closer to it and God calls out to him from the bush and says take off your sandals for the place where you are standing is holy ground so in much the same way this messenger God himself instructs Joshua to take off his sandals for he is in a holy place he is standing in the presence of the Lord and so he does that and waits for further instruction from God. And so Joshua realizes that the question is not, is this guy on his side? But is he on that guy's side? Is he on the side of this warrior? I'm reminded of Jesus' words in Luke chapter 11. We just heard these a few weeks ago on Sunday. Uh, Whoever is not with me, is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. That God is looking for people to join him in his work. That he's not concerned so much with what we see as being issues before us, with our petty arguments, but he wants us to join him in his battle of something far greater and far larger and far more important than many of the day-to-day issues we deal with. And so we have to ask ourselves, as we go through life, 
Are we on God's side? Are we acting in a way that makes sense for someone who is fighting in an army, who is engaged in a struggle against the forces of evil in the world? We have to keep asking ourselves, what should I do in this situation? How can I move forward in this knowing that I am fighting for the one true God? Chapter 6. So now Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, with its king and mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram horns, ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. And when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people shall shout with a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. So Joshua the son of Nun called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant and let seven priests bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark of the Lord. And he said to the people, Go forward, march around the city, and let the armed men pass on before the ark of the Lord. So God brings the people of Israel into the promised land. He parts the river. He puts the fear of them into all the nations living there because of his power. He builds their trust and their faith through an exercise that also, at the same time, helps restore them into that right covenant relationship with him and prepare them to move forward in holiness and do his work as they capture the land that he had promised them. He sends his son to come to meet with Joshua, to encourage him, to give him instructions. And then he unveils his battle plan to the nation, which frankly had to sound a little bit puzzling, I would imagine, to Joshua as he heard this. Um, no you know, real common military strategy here. Um, nothing that seems particularly relevant to the obstacle they faced or um, what to do, uh, but a plan that would remind the nation of Israel, remind Joshua, would remind the nations they were fighting against that God is powerful and that God is fighting this battle. And so he gives them the instructions uh, to take the people to march around the city uh, led by the priests with the Ark of the Covenant um, and that they're to repeat that and follow after God's instructions in this area. And so in verse 8 we see the people follow these instructions. And just as Joshua had commanded the people, the seven priests bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns before the Lord went forward blowing the trumpets with the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord following them. The armed men were walking before the priests who were blowing the trumpets, and the rear guard was walking after the ark, while the trumpets blew continually. But Joshua commanded the people, You shall not shout or make your voice heard, neither shall any word go out of your mouth until the day I tell you to shout, then you shall shout. So he caused the ark of the Lord to circle the city, going about at once. And they came into the camp and spit the night in the camp. So the people of Israel do this. They go out, and they send a group, 
circle the city, come back to their camp, and wait. And so we see the next step in verse 12. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. And the seven priests, bearing the seven trumpets of ram's horns, before the ark of the Lord walked on. And they blew the trumpets continually. And the armed men were walking before them, and the rear guard was walking after the ark of the Lord, while the trumpets blew continually. And the second day they marched around the city once and returned into the camp. So they did for six days. Verse 15. On the seventh day they rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And at the seventh time, when the priests had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. And the city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted and the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. So most of us, if we've been around church much, if we went to Sunday schools together, probably at least somewhat familiar with this narrative. The people of Israel go in with the ark and the priests, the trumpets, they march around the city, go back to the camp, get up the next day. Go out, march around the city, go back to the camp. So they do that for six days. On the seventh day, they circle the city seven times. And they're instructed that after they've completed that seventh circle of the city, on the seventh day, that they're to shout, it says in verse 16, for the Lord has given you the city. And so they're reminded again here that God is the one giving victory. That God is the only one who could do this. That God has already won this battle. All they have to do is follow his instructions and God will just hand the city over to them. Again, not something that would probably have made a lot of sense from a strictly military standpoint. But God had other plans here. And so they do that. They follow God's instructions. They circle the city. Um, But they're reminded in the midst of this that when God gives it over to them, In verse 18, it says, To keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. Verse 19, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. And so normally, when they were going in, we see this in other battles even as they go conquer Canaan, uh, that the men would have been able to divide some of the spoils of victory, the things they capture as they go into a city. They could have split up and taken uh, to use later to enrich themselves, um, to be able to have better lives down the road. But everything within Jericho was set apart. 
Um, the silver and gold, the valuable precious metals, they were supposed to set those apart for God, to bring those to the temple as kind of a first fruits offering almost of their conquest, that they were to turn these over to God in thankfulness and in worship that God had given them this great victory. And anything else they're supposed to destroy, that they're not supposed to take anything away from this particular city. And then God gives instructions um, in verse 21 that all who are in the city are to be destroyed. Uh, Men, women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Uh, He told them earlier that only Rahab and her family were to be saved. And this is one of those things that's hard to understand, that God is sending his people in to capture this land, and he wants them to execute it. Everyone who lives there, no matter who they are, no matter their age, with the exception of Rahab and her family, that she had chosen to follow God, to identify herself with God and with his people, and because of that, was to be spared. But we have to remember that the people living in Canaan were exceedingly wicked, Um, that this is a culture that was so depraved, so evil. Uh, We know that they practiced terrible, terrible things, Uh, that their worship often involved child sacrifice and prostitution, Um, that this was what this society was marked by. And God did not want these people to have a remnant dwelling in the land of Israel to draw the Israelites away from him, Uh, that these people were so evil, so far removed from him, that they had to be wiped out in order to help save the people of Israel. And we'll see later on, as we continue our study through the Old Testament, that Israel failed to do this in some areas. They failed to completely wipe out the people of Canaan, and it did result in a great deal of sin for them. That they were led astray, they were led into false worship and even child sacrifice by these pagan nations that they failed to wipe out. And so we're reminded as we go through this that sin has consequences. That there were consequences for the people of Canaan who lived a life completely outside of the bounds that God would have given them. And there are also consequences for the people of Israel that if they disobey God and take for themselves the treasures that they had been explicitly commanded not to, that there would be consequences. That's something we're going to see a little more in our study next week. But God grants his people victory here. Uh, There's no way that they could have taken credit for the victory God had given them. That the way he did it, the way it happened, the ease with which it happened was a reminder that God was with them and that God was the one who would give victory. Verse 22, but to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel. And they burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. 
But Rahab the prostitute in her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. And I think this is such a cool contrast when we read through this, that we see the punishment, the wrath of God upon a sinful people. We see him warn the nation of Israel about falling into sin and also experiencing his wrath. But we also see the grace of God to a pagan woman who had turned from her sin and in obedience had helped the people of Israel. That God saved this woman and her family through her obedience because she saw what he had doing and desired to draw near to him and to experience the relationship that the nation of Israel had with their God. And so reminded that God rewards the faithful, uh, that God saved Rahab and her family out of their sinfulness, that God promises to reward those who follow him. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6 says, Without faith it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. And so that's what Rahab did. We talked about that quite a bit last week. That she believed that God existed and believed that she would be rewarded if she sought him. And she was rewarded um, you know, quite well in this life, that she was spared her life, that she got to take part in the blessing of dwelling with the nation of Israel and eventually be included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. What a great reward that is in this life, not to mention the reward that she received in heaven for her faithfulness to God. Verse 26 Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, Cursed before the Lord be the man who rises up and rebuilds this city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he set up its gates. And so the idea with this, um, that they wiped out the city of Jericho, they completely obliterated this one. And Joshua even said that whoever rebuilds this city is going to be cursed. Um, that whenever he starts building the city, that he's going to lose his firstborn. And by the time he finishes, he'll lose his youngest son. And I think the idea is that the middle ones all go somewhere in between there as he's trying to rebuild the city. And we actually see this curse fulfilled in 1 Kings chapter 16. Uh, we see under uh, the, the reign of the wicked king Ahab, a man go in and rebuild the city of Jerusalem. We're told that he did lose his oldest and youngest son in the process. That we're reminded here that God takes sin seriously. That there are consequences for straying from that. Verse 27 says, So the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Uh, my dad always used to you know, word it slightly differently. Uh, I couldn't find what Bible translation this was. He probably heard this somewhere else or made it up. But he said that Joshua's triumph was heard throughout the land. So what that means is that in celebration of this great battle, that Joshua hopped on his motorcycle and went on a long ride all over the place. So, I don't know. Where exactly he got that one. But it's interesting, we see 
It says here that the Lord was with Joshua and that his fame was in all the land. That the people heard about Joshua. They heard about this great victory. Not because of who Joshua was. Not because of Joshua's cunning or wisdom. Not because of his ability in battle. They heard about Joshua because the Lord was with him. They heard of what the Lord was doing with the people of Israel and through the people of Israel. And so we see in these passages that God gives victory, that God gives victory to his people. And we think about what our lives look like, the battle of faith that we fight on a day-to-day basis, uh, that we're not fighting a physical war, but a spiritual one. And so for our, our connection, our tie into the New Testament today, we're reminded in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, it says that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Thanks be to God who gives us the victory. So think about, as we conclude here, what are you struggling with? What are the different trials and temptations we fight? What battles are we dealing with? What areas of life are difficult for us? That can look so many different ways. And there can be different sins that we're struggling to overcome. There can be different issues that arise with people we're around, with coworkers, with friends, with family. Uh, There can be different opportunities we have to share the gospel, to show God's love to those around us. And following God is not easy. We see that in the Old Testament. We see Jesus teach about that repeatedly in the New Testament along with the apostles. That following him is not always easy. But we can know whatever obstacle we face, wherever we are, that God has already won that battle. That he has already defeated sin and death on our behalf. And that we can walk in confidence and obedience and experience that victory that he has already won for us. So let's do that as we go through life this week. When we face difficult obstacles, when things come into our path that are hard, remember that God has already won. That we need to just walk in obedience to him and experience that victory that he has given to us. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your love for us, Lord. I thank you for your faithfulness to the nation of Israel and to us as believers, Lord. I thank you um, that you fight on behalf of your people, Lord, that we don't have to worry about anything that comes our way. We can be confident knowing that you are with us no matter what. And I pray that you would remind us of that when the storms of life arise, when difficulties and challenge come, that we would hold fast to you and to your truth, knowing that you have already done everything for us, Lord. I pray that you would help us to just have confidence in that, uh, to have confidence to walk in the good works that you set out before us. 
I pray that you would be with us as we do this, that you might be glorified. We ask these things in your name. Amen.